You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge here on America's Web Radio. Your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. That's me. Thanks very much for being with us today. Together with my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, we bring you the very best in healthcare policy chat radio uh, here on America's Web Radio. Uh, we're delighted to have you with us, and we've got some neat stuff to talk about today. Um, we're going to start with a few just news stories, random thought stuff I ran across, and then I'm going to tell a story about um, how health IT is – uh, really changing its focus a little bit. It's, uh, some experiences that I had that uh, that health IT is actually getting excited about direct primary care, which is a very interesting angle because um, as those of you who have listened to me for a while know over low these three years plus uh, that we've been doing the show, now, that health IT is my thing. That's my subspecialty. That's why I have a place in this group and I'm so grateful to be here. Um, and, but with Direct primary care coming on so strong uh, as uh, something folks are interested in and certainly the best uh, hope that we have right now for saving America's healthcare system. It's appropriate for even somebody like me to let the healthcare IT take a little bit of a backseat uh, as we talk about stuff that, you know, has much more immediate promise and sort of set aside MIPS and MACRA. And yes, we talk about that from time to time, as you know, uh, but there are bigger fish to fry at the moment, and I'm perfectly happy to work with that strategy and live that way. But, of course, about the time that you figure that's the way it's going to be for a while, then all of a sudden healthcare IT pops up and does something really strange, uh, which brings it back into the spotlight a little bit and that I'm going to share with you. And then after that, we have got uh, the last of the interviews from the Direct Primary Care Conference in Orlando, Florida, back in October uh, with uh, Jody Carroll and Vance Lassie. So that will pretty much fill out the hour. So here we go. Uh, first, I'm just going to give you – you know how uh, a lot of talk show hosts and television show hosts start the show with sort of their own little sermon every show. I thought, well, that's an interesting thing to do. I might try my hand at that a little bit or at least pretend to. I, I don't pretend to have the talent uh, of the folks who do this for a living. But uh, but for what it's worth, here goes. Just a few random thoughts and things. First, uh, I was doing some web research to get the show going here today and uh, came across this ad, you know how you get pop-up ads on the side of your web page, and usually those pop-up ads are sort of based on your own browsing history, which makes this all the more weird, but uh, got this pop-up ad for a hangover cure. Well, that's interesting. I don't know why my web browsing pattern would make people with hangover cures want to seek me out, but I guess that's a conversation for another day or something. But uh, the, the hangover cure was a very interesting thing. It was a product called Pedialyte. Now, if you're a doctor, you know what Pedialyte is. If you went to medical school, whether you're a pediatrician or not, uh, Pedialyte is a hydration solution. Uh, it's what you use to feed babies and little kids who who get dehydrated very easily because they are so small. Uh, we usually use it to make it makes your children get hydrated after surgery, maybe a tonsillectomy, maybe getting tubes in their ears or something. But we'll always tell moms and dads that are taking care of these folks post-op to feed them uh, Pedialyte if they won't take anything else. It's the best way to get hydration in and some electrolytes in and keep things from getting out of balance during those first few critical post-operative days. So 
I see this ad for Pedialyte as a hangover cure. And that's just kind of funny because now you have this solution that was originally conceived to help little babies and little children, and now it's being adapted to a very adult problem. Now, if you're a doc, you also realize that that does kind of make sense from a physiologic standpoint because if you're hungover, what do you need? Fluids and electrolytes, which is what Pedialyte provides, just like uh, – you know, babies who've just had surgery or they're ill for some other reason and their oral intake is a bit compromised. Uh, but I just thought that was kind of funny and I still don't understand why that popped up on my webpage instead of yours, but hey, so be it. Um, interesting thought number two. Uh, and this is the health IT sort of related topic. Now, we are as docs, for those of you who are physicians uh, listening, uh, we are, have been forced, and you know this, one, if you're a doc in the first place. If you're not, you've heard me talk about this, that we had been forced over the past several years by terrible government regulations to use computer technology. So we are using laptops and tablets and desktops and, and whatever form of, of uh, computer technology suits you best in the office to take care of patients. However, uh, even somebody like me, who's obviously kind of an IT nerd about stuff like this, we are very frugal about the equipment we buy. We don't have a lot of money coming in to spare for things like this. And, and one thing you may not realize docs have to do, except in the very large practices, is that every dollar that you spend on a new computer or a new this or that is money that literally comes directly out of your paycheck. This is not some big corporate giant that just sort of magically absorbs these expenses like IBM or something else. Uh, these, uh, the, the, this is very personal, and it is your own dollars and cents that you're spending. And so you tend to be very frugal about stuff, and one of the things you tend to be very frugal about is whether how often you buy a new computer, a new laptop, desktop, what have you. So after four years, I finally gave in and replaced my Microsoft Surface with an HP because I need a good laptop to connect with my electronic medical record system, and I also use Dragon to do dictation. And it's just a reminder when you buy something new and it works so much better uh, that I think I've probably already, although I've only had the computer a couple of weeks, I think I've already gotten my money back in a, a higher-speed computer that works more reliably that I don't have to time fixing. And it's just a reminder to you docs in the audience, if you're thinking about a technology investment, if it's crossed your mind to do it, Go ahead and do it because you'll probably get that money back fairly quickly uh, within a couple of months. And you forget that when it's been a while since you've spent the money. But if you're thinking about doing it, I would say go ahead and do it. Your patients will thank you. Your family will thank you when you get home sooner, etc., etc., etc. Okay, last of the random thoughts. This is kind of my favorite uh, news story of the last couple of weeks, um, and it has to do with an organization that uh, we doctors, quite frankly, find annoying. Uh, it doesn't affect us directly. It's more about hospitals and, and large healthcare organizations rather than individual physicians. However, any doctor that comes near a hospital, which is almost all of us, not all of us, but almost all of us, is familiar with something called the Joint Commission. The Joint Commission is short for Joint Commission for Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations. This is the watchdog group who has only by historical accident been given the power to accredit hospitals or refuse to accredit hospitals uh, for their quality of performance. And they do both announced inspections and unannounced inspections. And it is a source of huge expense 
huge heartache, huge stress for any healthcare facility, hospital, surgery center, what have you, that uh, is subject to these inspections. And the part that's very annoying is, number one, they, they really have no intrinsic authority to be accrediting anybody. It would be like if I walked in the front door of a hospital that had never heard of me and said, I'm going to inspect you and decide if I like you or not. Well, they would probably laugh in my face as well they should. But somehow this organization uh, has, through you know legislative success, uh, they are linked to Medicare. And so to be accredited with Medicare, you have to have joint commission approval which happens at least every three years by inspection, if not more often by unannounced inspection. But they have done this job with impunity, uh, above criticism, uh, and, and without any sort of accountability to anybody else. And that's turned out to be a bit of a farce because they uh, have, uh, have, have had some significant issues, one of which is that most of their board members are, are, are members of the very groups that they inspect. And so that creates an obvious moral hazard and conflict of interest. But anyhow, getting to the story, this is all background, right? So, so here's the story about the joint commission that has come out recently is that they are getting sued. Finally, finally, somebody is actually holding the joint commission accountable. Somebody's inspecting them. Somebody is holding them accountable. And interesting that now finally the road's going the other way. And I think that's terrific. So what are they getting sued for? Well, in the, in the early 2000s, they came up with this bright idea. Actually, they didn't come up with it themselves. They were working in conjunction with one of the leading manufacturers of narcotic pain medication. Now, you already know why that's important, because we are grappling with an opioid epidemic crisis. Right? Rates of addiction have never been higher. Rates of death have never been higher. Uh, we have a serious public health crisis on our hands because of opioid addiction. Where's the problem coming from? Where did it come from? Well, Joint Committee is getting sued by, or Joint Commission is getting sued by four cities in West Virginia where the opioid epidemic is particularly bad, and they are being sued because of an alleged failure to make risk clear, right? spread misinformation about the addiction risk. Uh, and this all uh, comes out of a program that was done about 15 years ago where they decided to introduce a fifth vital sign, right? Vital signs are what? Heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, body temperature. And then they uh, advocated this fifth vital sign called pain scale. And if you go into any inpatient hospital room, you will find this pain scale posted on the wall and it's a one to ten scale they just show you two four six eight and ten it goes from no pain with a happy face to middle of the road pain which is uncomfortable to horrible pain where this face is tearful and is you know obviously in a huge amount of distress but linked to this pain scale was the notion again pushed by the narcotic manufacturers figure that one out that pain needed to be treated until it was gone not just until it was bearable, but because it was gone. Now, the conflict of interest with an opioid manufacturer is obvious. You need more pain medicine to do that, prescribe more pain medicine. They sell more pain medicine, make more money, obviously. But this pain scale has been linked to increased use of opioids, increased addiction rates, 
And so now we have a lawsuit against the Joint Commission where somebody is finally holding them accountable. And I think this is terrific because the Joint Commission really had no business uh, inspecting hospitals in the first place. They managed in the 60s to become a part of Medicare accreditation. Uh, but you know nobody really questioned way, whether they were the appropriate organization to do this or not. It just kind of happened by historical accident. And so finally, it's just one of these stories that makes you think, well, you know what? Maybe there is a little justice in the world. And I am uh, you know, dying to see how this is going to turn out. No question about it. So we are approaching the end of the segment already. So uh, I am in the beginning of the next segment going to tell you the story about how the health information technology community of all people has finally well, not finally, but surprisingly become fired up about direct primary care. And I'm going to tell you the story about how I went to a board meet or a, a, I was a, a panelist at a meeting here in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago and, and how all this went together. So we're at the end of the segment. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week. Thanks very much for being with us here on America's Web Radio. The Doctor's Lounge is broadcast live on America's Web Radio Thursday mornings from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. and is available at your convenience by podcast uh, anytime you want by downloading from a podcast app. So we thank you for your support. Uh, as the year draws to a close, we ask you to translate that listener support into financial support. So please go to d4pcfoundation.org. And give generously here as we approach the end of the year with your uh, tax-deductible contribution to our 501c3 nonprofit foundation. So, again, thanks very much uh, in advance for your listener support and your financial support. As we get into second segment here, as promised, a couple of things coming up. The first is I'm going to tell you my recent experience about how the health information technology community has awakened to the wisdom of direct primary care, uh, a very unlikely event in my opinion, one that I never would have predicted in advance. 
but I'm going to tell you what's happened to me here in the last three or four weeks with that. Uh, and then we're going to move into the last of the uh, Direct Primary Care Orlando meeting interviews with Jody Carroll and Vance Lassie. So here we go. I, as I said in the last segment, you know, I was am content to put my greatest area of expertise for this group, this foundation, which is health information technology, and set that aside for the moment to become a foot soldier for the direct primary care movement. I am happy to do that. I love this movement, uh, even as a specialist, even as a non-primary care physician. I, I am passionate about passionate about this, uh, so much so I can't even say the word, uh, but uh, I think it's a great thing. And I was willing to sort of let health IT just sort of keep my activities on the side, bring something up when it's interesting, what have you. Well, it turns out uh, that I'm able to do both at the same time. So here's what happened. Uh, I am a board member, an advisory board member for the Technology Association of Georgia's health arm, health group, TAG Health, call it. Um, I was, you know, had the good fortune of being invited to join that board a couple of years ago. And as such, I know what Technology Association of Georgia is doing with their meetings, etc. So the biggest meeting of the year is something called the Health IT Leadership Summit. Happens every November or early December. And it's one of the biggest meetings in the Southeast that brings the health IT community together. So uh, I had the good fortune of being invited to be a panelist on the first panel after the keynote speaker. Uh, keynote speaker was one Shahid Shah, someone that I know from the health IT community. Great guy, talked about artificial intelligence. And we are going to do a segment on uh, AI, artificial intelligence, uh, probably in early 2018, or it might fit it in in December, depending on how the schedule pans out. But following that, I was on a panel uh, talking about quality measurement. In healthcare. Now, you guys know how I feel about quality measurement in healthcare. We've talked about it here on the show before. I think that the third party measurement of quality in healthcare is an expensive and useless, stupid thing. Waste. Garbage. So I was put on this board to be, or this panel to be the contrarian regarding quality measurement because the other two folks uh, on the panel were uh, the CEO of Emory Healthcare Network and I think the COO of Wellstar, which is another of the of Atlanta's large healthcare networks. So I had two C-suite executives from two of the largest healthcare networks in the Atlanta area in the southeast, really, um, up against one doc who held the opposite point of view. So the first thing I'll say is to be complimentary of the other two panelists. They were actually their candor regarding the difficulties that you face doing third-party measurement of quality with these arbitrary measurements. Was that, They actually had a lot more candor than I expected. I expected them to sort of toe the party line, and they, they did better than that. I will give them credit for that. For my part, I obviously wanted to bring up some points about how, as we have talked about on this show, the idea that a third party can measure quality after the healthcare transaction has taken place simply doesn't work. And we've talked about that here at length, and it is not my intention to sort of repeat all of those arguments because that's going to take up too much time. But one of my objectives in being on that board was to find some sort of an opportune moment to pivot my narrative to direct primary care. 
and offer the thesis that we have talked about here repeatedly, which is that there's only one entity in the healthcare marketplace who is qualified to measure quality, and that's the patient. Right? If you like your doctor, you go there again. If you don't like your doctor, you go elsewhere. And if you get rid of the third party, then you can truly bring in cost as well and decide whether or not the money that you're spending, your own money, that you're spending on that physician, whether you're getting value or not, as opposed to having a third party pay for the transaction and then measuring value with these ridiculous reports and surveys and quality measures and whatnot that we've talked about at length. And so I was able to bring direct primary care into that conversation and was and I, and I brought up examples that we have heard here before, and again, I don't want to go into them at length. The example of the patient with abdominal pain who went to the ER and spent $18,000 who could have gone to his direct primary care physician and spent $300 for the exact same workup. Presenting those numbers to this audience who had never heard that before, um, they were duly impressed at the time we talked about it. What I was not prepared for is whenever you do one of these panels or you're a speaker, you always have some folks, if you do a good job, you have folks who come up to you afterwards and shake your hand and say it was a great talk and like to hear more, et cetera, et cetera. But we talked about a lot of different topics. Direct primary care was only one of them. And, you know, in my mind, it really wasn't the leading one for this particular audience. But it turned out to be the one that they were the most interested in. So at least a half a dozen people who came up to shake my hand said, I'd love to hear more about direct primary care. It's a very exciting model. How do I learn more? Where do I go? Et cetera, et cetera. Tried to give them as much guidance as I could. And after about 20 or 30 minutes of talking with these folks, I was impressed with their level of interest. But I expected the, the wave of interest to kind of be over with when I was gone from the meeting because I didn't stay for the rest of the day because, of course, I had to get back and take care of patients. And as you know, and we have mentioned many times, and I'll mention again, doctors are like plumbers or hairdressers or anyone who does you know skilled labor, which is that if you're not working and you're not having patients come through the door, um, there is no money coming in, and yet your overhead with your rent and your staff and everything remains unchanged. So when I go to one of these meetings – I don't stick around for the whole thing, and I don't go to the reception the night before, and I don't stick around for dinner because, or, or the, all day because that's too much time away. So I didn't get a chance to hear much else. Shook a few hands, talked to a few people, exchanged a few business cards, figured that was the end of it. Turns out it was not. Fast forward three days to the next monthly Technology Association of Board, Georgia Health Board meeting. All right, They meet on the first Friday of every month, which happened to be the Friday following the Tuesday this meeting took place. And so at, I went to the board meeting, of course. But my plan was to kind of stay quiet at this particular board meeting. Other meetings, I've made my opinion known. I know you're shocked to hear that. Uh, but uh, this time I thought, you know what, I was such a big mouth at this meeting talking about quality and how it doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera. I thought I'm just going to kind of shut up and be seen and not heard and and uh, just kind of take it easy. Uh, it turns out I was never given that opportunity to shut up and not be heard and take it easy because everybody wanted to know more about direct primary care, both at the macro level, like what can we do, how can we get involved, but from some board members who were speaking as individual patients on their own behalf. 
who are not going to have health insurance after the end of the year because Blue Cross Blue Shield's pulling out of Obamacare exchanges in Georgia. Then they were saying, can I get insurance with direct primary care? Give me a doctor's name. Give me an entity. Give me a phone number. Give me somebody I can call. And there was also interest at the organizational level. And now, as a result of those conversations, a health IT organization wants to have its own direct primary care meeting this coming summer. Very similar to the one that we did in Orlando, except this one's going to be for the health IT community. They, they have an innovation meeting every summer, and they want this to be the subject of the innovation meeting. So very, very exciting stuff, something totally unexpected, and now brings the health IT component into direct primary care, and there's a huge potential there. It gives us a chance to start from scratch with health information technology that is not beholden to government regulations. It's only customers are going to be the patients and the doctors who take care of them. And to have this level of interest, you know, as an innovative front in Georgia's health IT community is very, very exciting indeed. So I will keep you posted on what happens. I'm sure there'll be more conversation at the meeting uh, coming up in December, and I promise you, I will keep you posted. All right, so enough of me talking. You've heard one person yak into the microphone long enough. We're going to move to the last two interviews uh, from the direct primary care meeting in Orlando a couple of months ago. Uh, so the first one's going to be Jody Carroll. So let's get that teed up Yeah. Florida this week, uh, hosting our biggest meeting of the year on direct primary care. And one of the things we're trying to do with the show while we're here is to get some personal stories, to understand the journey that people take uh, as they learn about direct primary care, as they learn more about health care policy and the adverse effects that government involvement and third-party payer involvement have in health, how health care is delivered. So Today, we're talking with Jody Carroll, who is a nurse. Uh, we've known her for a long time. Jody's been a friend of the foundation for a long time, and we're delighted to see her uh, those few times a year we get to, to chat at, uh, at meetings and whatnot. But uh, Jody has a very interesting story of how she started off on one side of the political aisle many, many years ago and went through a journey. I won't go so far to say that, that it's a complete change of mind. I think that's overstating, but it's certainly a, an interesting journey in how she's become, I guess, safe to say, Jody, more enlightened now than you were in the beginning. So I'm going to give the microphone to you and just let you tell this whole thing. Okay. So uh, I was – I I, I, I was – I would always call myself a moderate liberal. That's what I was. I tended to vote for Democrats. Um, I was. I always told myself I was willing to vote for a Republican. I. I was. I was a little bit interested in John McCain in the 2008 election, but ultimately, I gleefully voted for Barack Obama. And I joke. Uh, I joked at the time that. When I went and I voted for Barack Obama, it was the first time that I'd voted without holding my nose. I was that certain that this was a very good person for the job. And so, uh, but going, moving into his presidency, um, really early on, actually, it was, it was when the um, stimulus package was being debated. And we were talking about, you know, a trillion dollars, a trillion dollar 
Okay, we're at the end of the segment. We'll pick up at the beginning of the next one. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Karuchak, your host this week. Uh, thanks very much for being with us. We are in the midst of our interview with Jody Carroll, uh, a registered nurse who was telling her story. So I've talked enough. I'm going to get the heck out of the way and just go ahead and let this play. A bit interested in John McCain in the 2008 election, but ultimately I gleefully voted for Barack Obama. And I joke, uh, I joked at the time that... When I went and I voted for Barack Obama, it was the first time that I'd voted without holding my nose. I was that certain that this was a very good person for the job. And so, uh, but going, moving into his presidency, um, really early on actually, it was, it was when the um, stimulus package was being debated. And we were talking about, you know, a trillion dollars, a trillion dollar uh spending bill and i felt that his behavior was a, a a greater reflection of um a political agenda than it was actually solving this crisis problem with a trillion taxpayer dollars that is that that should be taken so seriously spending that kind of money and i felt it was more about a political agenda and I, at the time, was in reasonable agreement with the with the agenda, but I thought this is no way to do it, um, risking a trillion dollars in the midst of a crisis. So, right right there during the um, uh, uh, debate on the uh, stimulus, the intellectual door started to open a little bit for me. And I'm a nurse, as you mentioned. Um, well, I was a nurse actually, I'm not so much anymore, but. Once a nurse, always a nurse, right? Uh, my husband is a physician, so I have a little bit of information on healthcare things. And once the healthcare debate started to heat up, um, this is where it starts to get a little more um, eye-opening for me because I'm hearing things, um, and as I hear them in the media uh, by Barack Obama and other Democrats, and I'm thinking, well, that's not true, or that's a partial truth, and, and if you just say the partial truth, you're misleading people. So it's distressing me. I'll give you an example. Constant 
in the media, you would hear that little talking point, we are number 37 in quality in healthcare. And I knew that wasn't true because I looked at the World Health Organization study and they had, I can't remember at the time now, it's or, uh, right now, but they had like four or five different categories um, that they rated nations. And only one of those categories even hinted at, at, um, at the actual quality of the healthcare given. They really were only focused on fairness and distribution and cost. And in the only um, section where they even roughly looked at the quality, it looked at things like wait times, patient autonomy, cleanliness of the hospital, all those things. That category, we were, we ranked number one. And so it was a bogusly misleading claim to be making. So that, so I'm listening to these things and, and then I start thinking, well, if, if, if they're misleading about this, what else are they misleading about? You know, and I, um, at the time had triplets that were barely two years old and I go into this heavy research mode and I start researching information from the Congressional Budget Office, the Congressional Research Service, um, the Bureau of Labor, um, uh, old, uh, new and old. The, the White House produces a um, budget document every year and they basically just add every year new information. So it goes back pretty far in history, um, which has again, really good information that had I known some of this stuff, I pro- I would have voted differently. And so I'm getting really, really angry at this point and I'm feeling monumentally duped. And I, I don't, I don't want to blame them because it was, the onus was on me to educate myself. Education happens by you, not to you. But I'm thinking about all of the people like me who, you know, people are busy and they expect to get you know, reasonably well-educated by our media. That's really their job. Uh, We talk about transparency. They should be transparent about the information, not picking what they want you to know. Um, No, right. So um, I'm getting really, really upset about what has taken place. And um, uh, so I decided I got to do something. It's not enough for me to be up all night, and all day and not sleeping and being angry, I, I have to mobilize and do something. So um, a friend of mine had mentioned uh, a million million med march in Chicago. And a, a doctor named uh, Mark Nierhoff was, I, I looked into it because I said, okay, this might be something that can be my outlet, at least for healthcare. And I ended up being connected with Mark Nierhoff, who... Uh, at the time, I believe, was a board member of Docs for Patient Care. So he connected me with Docs for Patient Care. And then I went to D.C. I, you know, you know the story. I've been the token, yes. the token nurse for Docs for Patient Care. Okay, okay. <laughs> but that was, that was back when we were um, watching Herman Cain try to get the Republican nomination. Yes. So go ahead. Yes, yes. Oh, and I have a story about with Herman Cain in my uh, – yeah, that was a fabulous time, and it was a great outlet for me. It still didn't. It, it was it was my outlet for healthcare, but I was still brewing about the overall nature of a corrupt media. That was still a, an issue for me. One one of the one of the things that sort of brought everything for me to a head on the whole media thing was, um, and speaking of Herman Cain, um, I started following. Well, I, I had 
I had read things from politifact.com even before I voted for Barack Obama. I was gathering facts from there, I thought. But now I'm approaching everything that they reported with um, a different mindset because now I'm, okay, well, is that really true what you're saying? And so now I'm reading what they post and I'm looking at their, re- their references and I'm questioning their references, looking cl- more closely at them. I found so much stuff, but the two of the most important ones, one of them was um, they had two different posts on the Bush tax cuts and for, you know, with I don't remember how long the time span was, but like you know, several months apart. And I noticed that they made a statement about the Bush tax cuts in each of those posts, and but both of those statements could not be true. So I took those posts and I showed them. I sent them an email. And I said, "You said this on the Bush tax cuts, and you said this on the Bush tax cuts, but both of those statements cannot be true." And their response was really distressing to me because there were, I have it in writing. I have it in email. The, dis, the response to me was, well, we can't um, go over everything we've written before because we've only got three national reporters. We don't have time to do that. And I'm thinking, why would you have to look back in the past and see what you said if you're only reporting the facts? So this is disturbing me, but I'm continuing to check what they write. And one night, um, I'm I'm going through, and it was when Herman Cain was running, and Herman Cain had said employees pay 15% in payroll taxes. PolitiFact had rated that false, and their in their narrative, their uh, justification for that was, well, no, they don't pay 15% in payroll taxes. They pay half that. Their employer pays the other half. Well, skip forward a month. It was either forward or backward, but I think it was forward a month. Barack Obama made a statement on taxes. It wasn't specific to payroll taxes, but he made a statement on taxes, which they gave a true rating to. And when you read the narrative that justifies their truth rating, in that they say, and that employee pays 15% in payroll taxes because, as every economist knows, the employee bears the burden of the employer's percent of the payroll taxes. So, again, they say, two different things on that. And, you know, it's hard when you when you follow them very closely. It's hard not to see that it's a political bias because magically people on the right always get flames and, you know, falsehoods. And they do all of these um, intellectual gymnastics to give truth to the, to the left that I, I wish I was making this up, but I'm not. So anyway, I'm really upset uh, still. <laughs> I had been talking to my husband about making a website to help people like me, you know, have access to information. And, you know, and I wasn't out to, to change anybody's minds or opinions, but I was out to help those people like me to say, okay, but know this first. Okay, but be aware of this piece of information that is not being given to you easily. Um so that night, when I saw the PolitiFact on Herman Cain and Barack Obama, I did not sleep. I was planning my website in my head. And my husband came down that morning, and I said, I have got to do this website. And he had watched me suffer. It was two years now that I had been just, I can't believe this is happening. And don't forget, this is still taking care of triplets at the same time. Don't forget that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they were easier than this road. I was, yes, this. All right. Yes. Fair enough. Um, 
And, you know, to my husband's credit, he said, I'm all for it. And so he let me do that. And so um, it was an amazing experience. But ultimately, I learned that people aren't that interested in factual information. And they want to be entertained. They want spoon feeding. And I, I mean, I guess I get that. But I decided, you know, there's got to be another way to get people uh, truth and facts. It, 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 there's got to be a, a better way to get it in there. And ultimately, I came to observe, I guess, that the way it has happened for those on the left is, and, and I put this into my own experience, has been through culture, not politics. Okay. And let, let me explain. Yeah. So when I look back on things that, you know, TV I watch and things I consume, for example, the West Wing. I had no idea when I was watching the West Wing that, and, 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 and TV shows, the, you know, Modern Family, there's all these things that we're watching for entertainment purposes, but we're actually internalizing the left's arguments on a regular basis. And so oh, yeah. when you more and more flagrant in oh, recent right, years, I mean, sure. they're not even trying to hide it now. No, no, no. Right. No, but it's really effective because when you get people to buy it culturally, the, the political battle is so easy because you can lie and they will accept the lie because it's already been culturally ingrained and you can make the other guy the bad guy because it goes against their feeling of what their cultural belief has become. Sure. I mean, they can make their plots the way they want. Yes. They can actually offer – that makes perfect sense, Jody, because they can – through all of these shows, they they give you their idea of what normalcy looks like. Absolutely. And you can just subtly nudge yes. people. That makes perfect sense. It is sense. incredibly effective. And so I've come to the belief that that's where our side – has been failing is we haven't this is not a political battle it's a cultural battle and we have failed yet to even get on that field okay reaching the end of the segment uh stay tuned for segment four we'll have vance lassie listening to doctor's lounge on america's web radio stay with us the docs for patient care foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host. Thanks for sticking with us all the way through segment four. We have good interviews today. We've just finished listening to the bulk of our interview with Jody Carroll. Um, we're going to move on for the sake of time for our interview with Dr. Vance Lassie and uh, let you hear the rest of uh, the uh, great interviews we got with folks who are champions of direct primary care and similar issues. So with that, we'll move right into Dr. Lassie. Vance Lassie right now. He is the founder of Holton Direct Care in Holton, Kansas. And uh, he is going to give us our story, or his our story, his story on how he founded uh, Holton Direct Care, and then give us some of his feelings about where direct primary care is going, and quite frankly, anything else he wants to talk about. So, Doctor Vance, the microphone is yours. Awesome, thanks a lot, Mike. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. Uh, so, uh, my story is, uh, I think, the same as so many of the rest of us in direct care, and that is, uh, I was uh, I was drowned, and and my patients were getting care uh, for me that I wouldn't want to receive if I was the patient, you know, the golden rule was not in effect and it needed to be. And uh, the only way to, to fix it was to get out and build it from scratch. And luckily I wasn't the first one there. The, much of the trail had been blazed for me. So I just, uh, t- uh, after about nine years on the inside, practicing full spectrum family medicine in a hospital, I was doing inpatient, outpatient, ER, OB, everything. I was working a lot, never was home, never saw my family. My patients got very little time with me, very little access to me, were overcharged, over, you know, just, it, it was all wrong. And, uh, so after nine years on the inside, I got out and, uh, took the plunge and, uh, started my practice still in Holton, Kansas. So I'm still rural. I'm still doing full spectrum care. Don't do a ton of ER anymore. I just kind of fill in when they need me or something like that, but, um, still doing the rest of it. Um, OB is not looking promising for the future for me just because our hospital has had some financial issues and ultimately they're going to shut down OB services. So if I want to keep delivering babies, I'm going to have to drive to a town 40 miles away or whatever. Um, pardon me. So I think, uh, I think honestly I may, I may uh, end up losing OB, but you know, there's a season for everything and it may be the time we'll see, but I, I do, I do really love full spectrum care. I still see my patients in the hospital, all that kind of stuff, which is uh, unique. Not a lot of direct care docs are still are doing inpatient care. I have a soapbox about that. I'd love to get on there and tell them that they should. Uh, maybe this is a soapbox, right? You've got lots of listeners and, um, a lot of the doctors are listening to me. So I'm going to stomp on all of you guys' toes with my size 14s. Um, but I still love you. But here's my, my, I mean, this wasn't why I came on the show to talk about, but it came up. So let's just do this. Um, I really feel like, uh, inpatient care is part of full continuity family medicine. And it, it was, and it was for a long time. And we were all trained that way. And then managed care got involved, screwed the system up. And the only way to get paid was to crank through 30 people a day in the office. And if you're over doing rounds, you're not seeing the patients and, so I absolutely understand where hospitalists came from, and I understand how that happened. And and uh, I'm not saying it's right, but I understand how it happened. Uh, do hospitalists give poor care? No. But is it the continuity that your family doctor, somebody who knows you, can do? And the hospitalists, they, you know, they hand they hand their patients off to each other every 12 hours. You know, I've had a patient in the hospital for three days and had six different doctors. Look, uh, you know, common sense tells you that's not great continuity and it i know people take issue with me on that but it, it's it's uh it, it is what it is and uh, I, I really feel like who could take care of you better than your doctor who knows you well so we, we did that and and uh so what happened was uh we all started using the hospital system we all started backing out and uh, using the hospitals and all that kind of stuff and uh, because we did not have time 
And I, that's fine. I understand the system broke. It caused us to do that. However, we got out of that system, and now we have time. We have the time to give our patients. We have the time to take care of them in the hospital. I don't see a good reason not to do it unless just you're just being lazy. Now, the counter arguments are, oh, it's hard to get privileges now, blah, blah, blah. The hospitals have control. They're... Hey, you know what? Talk to your hospital. Make it work out. And if, if they don't want to let you in to, to do rounds on your patients, then why don't you go ahead and call the newspaper and tell the editor that, that, that their local hospital won't let your patient's doctor see their patients in the hospital. And bad press is a hospital's worst enemy. You can get privileges at that hospital again and, and take care of your patients. So I got a, kind of a chip on my shoulder about that. Um, but I think it's important. And it's not like in direct care there's that much of it. We keep our patients out of the hospital by spending so much time with them in the office and being able to do services in our office that you might not be able to do inside a traditional system, IV fluids, you name it. You know, So a lot of times we keep our patients. We're not in the, not in the hospital that often anyway. So what, what does it hurt to take care of your patients on the inside of the hospital? So uh, that's something I do. Um, what else can I tell you about my story? Um, let me, let me throw a question about that. I, that's a very intriguing angle on, on direct primary care that, that hadn't occurred to anybody, at least that I haven't heard about, which is that as you gain time, and correct me if I got this right or wrong, is you because you are able to control your world in the office, you actually have the time to go and round on your inpatients. How do you integrate that financially, and do you consider your inpatient rounds a part of the complete package? Absolutely. So whenever uh, I have a patient in the hospital, which is really not that often, but when I do, my professional fees, if you will, are the way I see it, they've already paid them. That's part of my monthly fee. That's what you get for your money is all this access to me. And that includes if you're in the hospital, I'll go see you there. And I don't charge you any extra for that. Some docs who do inpatient will charge 20 bucks per visit or something like that and throw that on your bill. And that's fine. You, everybody can make up their own mind on how they want to run their practice and what the value proposition is that works for them that their patients are willing to, to, to do. For me, I said it's not because it's you know, I, two years. I've done rounds three times. I mean, it's not like I'm there that often. So, so I don't, I don't. I don't charge extra for anything like that. Now, from the hospital's perspective, they need to get paid. So what the hospital does is they will bill the patient's insurance or Medicare or whatever for the facility fees, which are the bulk of it anyway, and not professional fees, because they're not paying me, so they're not collecting anything to turn around and give me as a professional fee. My patients pay me on their own. So the hospital just bills uh, facility fees, and that's it. Now, with with insurance insured patients, they may charge some other stuff to the insurance and as an out of provider network provider type stuff. I don't know. The hospital can do whatever they want. I don't care. I mean, they, it's fine. The patient has insurance. My patients are forty five percent of them are insured, maybe fifty percent at this point. So, um, you know, some of them will have it, some of them won't. And either way, that's fine. We'll save money everywhere we can. So, um, uh, so you know, it's been nearly two years. I guess uh, going on two years that I did this. Um, it's working really well for me. My patients, uh, love it. I love it. My family loves it. Uh, my marriage loves it. Uh, you name it. And, um, patients are crazy about it. I don't have to do marketing hardly at all. In fact, I really don't marketing because my, my patients tell their friends and family they're so satisfied with their care. The positive, uh, word of mouth gets it done. So, um, I haven't had to spend money on marketing, that kind of stuff. I keep it really, really low overhead. I'm aggressive about, uh, finding, um, deals and bargains on equipment, uh, whether it's EKG machines or whatever else, uh, because the lower my overhead is, the more I can afford to keep my monthly fee low and build that value proposition. So my patients keep wanting, you know, they want to, they want to stay on. They see the, they see the value in it. And, and it doesn't take long before a patient realizes how much money they're saving using direct primary care. And on top of that, you know, like the, the cherry on top is it's better care. It's more, it's more access. It's 
daily, you know, same day appointments, texting, email, all the rest of it with your doctor and blows your patient away on the first visit when you give them a card that says, here's my text number, here's my personal cell phone number, here's the email, you can get a hold of me 24-7, blah, blah, blah. They're just like, you know, <laughs> doctors just don't do that. Yeah, so anyway, that's it's been incredibly rewarding. And uh, I can tell you one thing, Mike, I'm never going back. Sweet. That is an awesome story. Let me throw a couple of questions at you here. And and, and, and in all fairness, I haven't had, he hadn't been prepped on these, so this is this is, he doesn't know what's coming. What about in a, I've heard about folks in rural rural areas having difficulty sort of negotiating the cash price piece because you know if you've got CON laws, and I don't know off the top of my head about what Kansas is like, but if there's not enough facilities for people to want to step out there with you know a negotiated cash fee, tell us about that. In rural in the rural area, that is that is an, an issue, no question about it. Um, the way we've we've worked that out is, uh, first of all, in Kansas, it's a big place, and people are used to driving a long ways to go anywhere. So, um, you get enough savings, people will drive. And what we've done is in the Midwest, we've uh, built something called the Midwest Direct Primary Care Alliance. I think we even have a website, and you know, Midwest DPC Alliance.org or whatever it is. You can Google it. Anyway, it's uh, twenty five or thirty doctors from kind of the I'm going to call it the Kansas City area. It's, you know, we're anywhere from three hours away from Kansas City, but it's that a circle, you know, uh, 200 miles in radius or whatever. And, but what we've done is we've used our, uh, bulk, you know, negotiating power because between the 20, you know, eight of us or 25 of us, whatever there is right now, we represent, you know, a good 10,000 plus patients or whatever. And so we can now go to these imaging centers and stuff and say, Hey, you know, we, we want, you know, you to be our imaging center of choice. They put cash on the barrel head, but we want, we get the price down. Let's do this, you know? And, um, that kind of negotiating has really been beneficial. We've been able to get, you know, we've been able to get, you know, MRIs down to 300 bucks and, you know, CT scans, 200 bucks, whatever, you know, and, um, as a group, but you're right. They're not local for me. Uh, all I have in my town is one hospital who the way they see it, they've got a monopoly and they're sure as hell not changing their prices for me and my measly patients. I mean, they're Goliath. I'm David. They, they see me as an ant and we're not changing the prices on our CT scans for you. Okay. That's fine. So my patients get in the car and drive an hour and a half to Kansas city get their CT scan or their MRI, and they drive an hour and a half back. Three hours of driving, and they save like three grand. I mean, if you gave me, if you offered me $3,000 right now to drive six hours, I'd say, well, interview's over. <laughs> I'm going to get in my car, and I'm gone because that's crazy. I mean, and my patients have no problem with that. So, yeah, there's, a, there's an access issue to those discounts in the rural areas because of the sort of monopolies the small hospitals have. But when the savings get that big, patients drive. They really will on stuff like imaging. And then same thing goes for colonoscopies. So like I, I can, I've got colonoscopies, including, including biopsies and including anesthesia for 1150 that all in no matter that's how much you pay, regardless of what they find and what they do to you 1150, but they got to drive to Kansas city. But again, you're, that's a, that's a 50% at least savings over what they're going to get locally. And I don't, you're paying yourself, you're paying yourself a thousand dollars an hour basically. So yeah, that anybody take that deal. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, uh, um, I, I hate to do that because I, I want to help our hospital. I, I love our hospital. The hospital is not bad. The system it's in is bad, and I want to support our local hospital. And I tell them, and every time I send someone out, I give them opportunity to earn that business, and they say no. And so, you know, hey, that money is leaving town, and that sucks. But hey, 
the bottom line is you you don't you're not entitled to my patient's business because you're here. You got to earn it just like we do, just like I do, like everybody else. And uh, you know, I, I think I'll probably put together a spreadsheet with this is how much money my patient spent in cash on these services. And Mary, I'll give it to him at Christmas time. Merry Christmas. Here's how much money you guys forfeited this year in your pride and you know hubris whatever so anyway that that's um a bit of an issue with for us um but it's it's not horrible i think it'd be a lot worse if if we were out way out in southwest kansas where you're a good six-hour drive from any major medical center uh you're just gonna have issues because it's but you know what they have i mean they have issues anyway and there's already no ct and mri and your 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 patients now you think about it they're driving anyway so you just make the deal in wichita or denver okay or well that's about as much of the interview as uh, we have time for unfortunately uh we may in uh, some of the later segments of shows in the near future play the rest of it uh but you get the idea across these interviews of how great this direct primary care movement has been uh, if you haven't heard them all i encourage you to go back and listen to those Anyhow, we are out of time. You've been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Thanks for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.